Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast with Laura Gregg and David Partain of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds. Laura and David's guest this episode is Malcolm Etheridge of CIC Wealth Management. And Laura, why don't you get us started? Go ahead. Today, we're talking about diversity, and I think it's important for us to all realize that over the next couple decades, the U.S. is going to look quite different than it does today. It's expected to be a minority-majority country. We're already seeing more women, more people of color, younger people, LGBTQ people owning a larger share of U.S. wealth and global wealth as well, and there is no expectation that this trend will revert. So why, David, with these changing trends, is the financial advisory industry not changing? Well, I think based on some studies that we've done, and we will be posting that information shortly, it is mostly because people who are who have wealth want to be managed by people who look like them. doesn't matter race, nationality, gender. They want to be... They want to trust somebody that looks like them. Well, I'm really excited to welcome Malcolm to the program today. Malcolm is an executive vice president and financial advisor with CIC Wealth Management in Rockville, Maryland. And he is focused on working with both business owners and executives in tech. His areas of expertise include retirement planning, executive benefits, investment portfolio development, and insurance. And Malcolm is passionate about the case for financial literacy and the transformative effects it can have on young people. I know he's a frequent speaker throughout the industry and in his community. And Malcolm is both co-host and executive producer of Manage Your Damn Money. It's a show designed (laughs) to help make casual conversations about personal finance that rule and no longer the exception among millennials and other young people. Well, the title should draw them. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> In the show, Malcolm and his co-host tackle topics as complex as credit scoring and paying off student debt, all while mixing in references to pop culture and current events to keep it entertaining. Malcolm, you have to tutor me on that so I look cool with my kids. And, <laughs> and manage your damn money is both a podcast and a television show. Welcome, Malcolm. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate all that intro because uh, to uh, David's point, the, the title is everything. And it, it does. It's a call to action. It's not just the title. No, I love it. And, I, you know, we're here today to talk about how we grow diversity within this advisory space. And so mm-hmm. since people can't see you, I will let them know you are young and you are African-American. And you have great success behind you. And we look forward to really diving into a lot of topics today. Yep. Let's do it. All right. I love talking shop, so I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> all right. So tell us more about your marketing. I know you do multiple things beyond manage your damn money. Tell us more about, about yourself. 
Yes. Yeah, so I do quite a bit of marketing. I actually was a marketing major in college, thought that I was going to go into advertising and then life kind of made the decision for me that that wasn't the direction that I was going to go. Fortunately, I landed in financial services. But so I do the podcast as, as you guys mentioned, but I don't actually use the podcast as a way to market myself toward prospective clients. I realized probably within the last six months, really, I've been doing the podcast for about five years now. And within the last six months through conversations with fellow black and brown financial professionals, regardless of whether they're advisors or something related, I realized that one of the challenges that a lot of us have is this internal conflict where we're working for firms and we're working in an industry that lends itself very well to the folks who are wealthy already. So the folks who have a million dollars or more in investable assets are like everybody's prime target. However, there's a lot of people who occupy the communities that we come from as black and brown practitioners who not only don't have a million dollars to their name today, they probably never will have a million dollars to their name ever. And so it's this is my way to be able to give something to that group of people and not feel like I am completely shutting the door on my own community whenever I have to tell somebody that I don't think they're a good fit for my firm because we would just frankly cost too much. It's a way to kind of feel better about that. But more to your point, David, with the marketing that I do geared toward bringing in uh, additional clients, I am very heavy on LinkedIn. I'm connected to quite a bit of you guys at FlexShares on LinkedIn, and I'm sure you're probably tired of seeing my updates every day at this point. <laughs> never, but never. I am, <laughs> But I am a very, very frequent user of LinkedIn, both to do my blogging and actually post you know, once a month a piece, maybe a thousand words or or fewer on an idea that I have that I want to dig real deep in, or my daily posts that are, you know, some article that I read this morning while I was on the train or on the treadmill or something at the gym, and I just want to share it out to the broader community. And all of that is really just a, a way to show the folks that I'm connected to and that I'm prospecting that I do actually know more than the average person about this specific topic. So, Malcolm, I have noticed uh, the frequency with which you post, mm -hmm. and I, you know, quite frankly, I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> Many advisors are are as well. I mean, how do you how do you navigate the compliance of that? And and I know that this isn't about diversity, but I think you know, as I'm out mm -hmm. talking to advisors, they always struggle with getting compliance approval to post and and whatnot. Can you kind of maybe take us through that, and then then we'll get back to the the con topic of today. But also, wait, yep, wait, so, Malcolm, wait. Mm -hmm. Where do you find the the time? I mean, my goodness, you got a full time job and you're doing this. Okay, you got the compliance aspect, but where do you find the time in your day? Well, I have committed to it on my calendar, so I have time blocks for all of the stuff that I do, and I hold pretty tight to those time blocks. And so people who don't know me very well might think that I'm a little bit rude because when I get to you know two minutes of whatever the next buffer is, I'll just throw out there in the conversation, all right, let's hurry up and land this plane. I got to go. <laughs> and that just you know has become a thing that people know me for. And it's like, well, now I know I have 45 minutes to get in all this that I want to talk to you about and keep it moving. And so 
I think because I'm very tight to my calendar, the people around me also kind of respond to it that way. But as far as the content is concerned itself, I, so my compliance, it, it helps that my compliance, chief compliance officer and I sit in offices next to each other. So it's very easy when I'm questioning something to pop into his office and say, Hey, here's what I'm planning to do. Tell me if this is going to get us into trouble or not. And have him tell me like, it would if you did this, but as long as you don't do that, we're fine. So really like our compliance manual isn't as large as that of like a, you know, a a wirehouse, a Morgan Stanley, a Merrill Lynch, somebody like that, who's more focused on managing to the lowest common denominator. They have to worry about every single one of their 14 or 20,000 advisors who could possibly land them in hot water making a mistake. Whereas we're a firm of 22 roughly. So we just have a don't be an idiot policy and it carries itself through pretty well as long as you're not hiring people who are looking to do irresponsible things. You don't really have to worry as much as the compliance team at a much larger firm where unfortunately, just law of large numbers, you'll accidentally hire an idiot or two every now and then and have to worry about those people. Well, I've I've made the case over recent years that we sit on a certain floor in our building here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I've said, if we really want to get this so that we, we are up to date and fast moving and compliance, they have to sit with us. They have to be embedded with us. So that sounds like hundred percent. Um, which is awesome. So Malcolm, you yeah, and, mentioned and, the larger firms. Why don't you tell us, I, I, if I have this correct, you were once at a larger firm and now you're not. Kind of tell us about your transition. Yep. So I'm a defector from two of them, actually. I started out my career as a trainee at Merrill Lynch. Did their P, what they called PMD program at the time. I know they've changed the name and made a few small changes to the compensation model to help with attrition at this point. But started out as a trainee there, graduated the training program, stayed around another couple of years, then got recruited away to go join Wells Fargo Advisors. I don't think I'll have to explain why I chose to leave Wells Fargo Advisors, but became an RIA or joined an RIA practice, I should say, in May of last year. And so there's a whole host of reasons behind me wanting to make that change. But one of the biggest ones, in fact, was compliance. So I saw the opportunity to go and talk to some of the younger uh, prospective clients that exist. And by younger, I mean in their 30s and 40s, not even like 18-year-olds. But that to me was the group that actually does live on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and everything else. And so the only way that I was going to be able to get to speak to them on the platforms and in the language that they were looking for was by going to an independent firm. So like I said, in May of last year, did make that jump. I'm guessing there's no looking back now. No, there's no looking back. I don't regret the decision one bit. I did, or I should say I am in the process of sort of building back a good bit of that practice from Not necessarily from scratch. I was able to take a handful of those clients with me in making that transition, but not nearly the same, you know, level uh, of uh, continuity as I had, you know, going from one firm to the next and the next. So you didn't ask me this, but if there is one piece of advice that I would give to anyone who's considering making a move to independence, it would be to make sure that it's the one place that you're going to want to be. Because the continuity of being in one place makes a heck of a difference, I've learned. 
So thank you for that. And, you know, we, we kind of, you told us you were graduate, you're a graduate with an advertising degree or marketing degree, mm-hmm. and now you're doing this. Tell us how you came to this industry. So funny enough, I had no intentions of coming here. It sort of chose me. So I was a sales manager at CarMax coming out of college. So graduated into the 08 economic crisis. Fortunately, I had a job all the while. So I was a sales manager there for a couple of years after college and decided to do something else. Happened to apply for a job at Bank of America to be a mortgage broker. And in conversation with the recruiter who I spoke to for the mortgage broker position, he said, look, I got no question that if I put you in front of the hiring manager for this job, you'll get hired the very next day. However, I've got this other opportunity that I'm I'm also sourcing for, which I think you might be a little bit better suited for. And if you're interested, I'll tell you a little bit about it. And it was the financial advisor trainee program at Merrill Lynch since right after the 08 economic crisis, they became one entity. And so I literally, after he gave me his whole spiel of why it was in my best interest to go off and become a financial advisor, I very naively or ignorantly or whatever the word is, just asked him, well, which one pays more? And he started laughing and said, I have a feeling you'll be more satisfied with this financial advisor role. And I said, all right, well, sign me up. That was literally all the thought that I gave it. And just so happened that it was, you know, the universe taking care of me in a way that I didn't even know I needed it. Yeah, I I love it when we're in front of groups of advisors and somebody asks the question, how many of you chose this as your career? Did you have another career before? And almost the entire audience raises their hands. But I will say, though, it's I'm I'm hoping that at some point we get to a point where people are going to school intentionally to become financial advisors. That is the world I would love to see at some point in the near future, where to your point in high school, I know that I want to become a financial advisor. The same way in high school, I know that I want to become an attorney or an engineer or a nurse or whatever else. I know I visit uh, my daughter's soccer coaches, F.A. and Ed Jones guy, and we visit the high school every spring and talk to the the kids in the accounting programs and the the personal finance and you know I'm not sure that we've changed any hearts or minds but at least at least they're hearing about it and in my travels we speak a lot with CFP program directors at the universities so what do you think the best way to capture the attention of the younger generation is so i think that we have to give the kids more credit than we do for being interested in ways that they are. So I actually volunteer with the National Academy of Finance and Junior Achievement, which are two programs basically that are geared toward getting high school kids access to information about finance and accounting. They have a stock market game that they play that's a full-blown simulator that they get to compete with other kids in their counties or in their districts or whatever, building a stock portfolio and tracking it along the way. And, you know, at the end of the, I guess, quarter system is what they're on. At the end of the quarter, they get called to the carpet, if you will, to see who won, you know, the competition. And when I've heard, you know, 15 and 16-year-olds giving their best case for why they chose to double down on Facebook instead of buying Tesla like their peers who won, or you know they thought that Snapchat was going to be the thing to own. Ver- I mean, these are future CFAs who are 
super excited about stock picking, super excited about company analysis and themes and, you know, at a much lower level, obviously, than a professional fund manager would do. But that's where it starts. And the thing that I realize is the kids have the capacity to do as much as we allow them to do or encourage them to do. It's us as, you know, the adults in the room who don't necessarily assume that they're capable of taking that on and and have the interest to take it on. But you'd be very surprised, I think, to know just how much they do actually enjoy tracking stocks and talking about the markets and understanding what's going on. Yeah, and I'll I'll say this. I had, so I grew up in Podunk, Arizona, in the middle of the desert, but I had a, a teacher, an economics teacher in high school who taught us how to graph stocks, who taught us about portfolios. And this was the early <clears throat> 80s. And so not to give too much away about my age, but it was uh, it was him, Mr. Mitchell, that really changed my life and said, and I, at that point, I was a senior in high school and I said, I'm either going to New York or Chicago. I don't want to go to LA, but I'm going to one of those two. And this is where I ended up in this business. So I agree. My algebra teacher, Mr. Russell, he just loves stocks himself. And so he would take one class every week to teach us how to open the Washington Post and find a company and see how it was doing and calculate the P.E. ratio and, you know, understand just at a very high level how it told you what the company was doing and how well they were performing. And I've never, never lost that that learning. Uh, It just so happened that I landed in a place to get to use that information. But that was, you know, more than 10 years later um, that I was actually using it for something. So you just never know. So I think one of the challenges, I've got two college-age kids and have been out meeting with universities. The challenge is that those people that have the acumen and desire to do that stock picking, what I'm hearing, Mm -hmm. especially from one of my offspring, is that if they're going to do it, they they want to be an investment banker. They, the mm. idea of financial planning doesn't seem to connect. They want to manage stocks. They want to pick the the FANG stocks and what up. But the financial planning aspect seems to be a little lowbrow for some of them. So the interesting caveat to that that I would submit to you, and this is interesting because it's a segue into one of the conversations that I know for sure you guys want to have. I would say that that is the case, with the exception of. In black and brown communities, helping professions are the ones that folks tend to gravitate toward the most. Mm -hmm. So if you think about service professionals like nurses, for example, my mom's a retired RN, or if you think about teachers as another example, or if you think about, you know, the folks that are in those serving service roles because they just really love helping people. And I think a lot of times in our communities, you'll see where folks who have the aptitude to go and be engineering teacher at Stanford, for example, will be a high school science teacher instead because they feel like that's where they can have the bigger impact. Or if you if you think about the, you know, the person that has the aptitude to go and be the investment banker or what have you, they choose to become a financial advisor specifically because they can work one-on-one with clients and be able to directly impact somebody's life in a way that you really wouldn't just by moving ones and zeros around on a ledger sheet or a giant Excel spreadsheet or what have you. And so I think it's a little bit different. It's a little bit unique in black and brown communities because 
being able to feel like I did really well for myself financially. And I also helped, you know, a few hundred people be that much better off financially at the same time makes it feel like a win-win. And that tugs at my heartstrings a little bit more than making however many millions of dollars as an investment banker that never actually knows the people that you're, you know, benefiting or in some cases even hurting. That's cool. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this is a profession where we're helping people. So let's talk about your, uh, time is flying here. So let's talk (laughs) about your clients. Tell us about what they look like. As David mentioned earlier in our research, investors said they wanted to find people who understood them, who looked like them, who felt like them. Tell us about your clients. So funny enough, I found that the firms who make the most noise about, you know, non-diverse clients being willing to or wanting to work with a diverse advisor. If you if you looked at my roster of clients by last name, it would look like roll call at the United Nations. Like these are there're just as many Kims and Goldsteins as there are Smiths and Johnsons. So, you know, I'm not I'm not naive. I understand that there's plenty of people who even in 2020 would still rather not entrust their nest egg to an African-American advisor or a Latino one or a woman advisor or anything else. But I also believe that those people are fewer and further in between than Wall Street would like to admit. And by Wall Street, I mean more broadly the banking industry, financial services, financial planning, insurance, all those kind of jumbled up together. And you know, I, I just think that we're we're getting to a point where we have to be honest and, and admit that there's something else in the way as the blockade to bringing in more black and brown folk, women, LGBT folk, like you mentioned, where we can constantly say that the reason is that the clients are saying it to us, but in reality, the clients are voting with their dollars. And so the clients are saying, I'm working with who is there at the time you presented them to me because you presented it as these were my only options if I wanted a a financial advisor, but I will work with whoever the person is if they're competent. That's kind of the take that I've gotten because it it just doesn't come up to the extent that I think a lot of these larger firms would like to convince people who are doing the research that it does. I could be wrong, you know, feel free to 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 correct me on it because you guys are the ones doing the research, but I, I just don't get that while I'm out in the field talking to people and meeting with prospective clients. So, yeah, I mean, our, our research is our research. We don't certainly have a corner on reality. It's just what people share with us. Yeah. But when you, when you look at the landscape and, you know, 80 plus percent of financial advisors are male, most people are working with male advisors. <laughs> just it's a numbers game, right? But we did hear from our uh, investor survey that all things being equal, they women would prefer to work with women and people of color would prefer to work with people of color. And, and that may be a numbers game as well. You um, know, but I don't have clients or prospective clients who reach out to me and say, we chose to come to you specifically because you are an African-American advisor and my husband and I or my wife and I, whatever, are also African-American. I never have people who say, and you know, frankly, I'm, I'm looking for the same conversation that you're talking about, but I never have people who pick up the phone or email me and say, we're coming to work with you specifically because we wanted to work with someone who shared our same background. It's almost always something like, 
we were told that we needed to find a certified financial planner. And because you are one, we chose to engage you in conversation. Now, there's uh, no no way that that's probably not an undertone in the conversation somewhere, or at least the thing that pushed them over the edge to make that decision. But then what about all of the, you know, non-Black or non-Latino or non-diverse you know diverse folks who also seek me out as an advisor the exact same way, send the same email or phone call or whatever that say, we would like to engage you for financial planning because we assume you have to be some level of competence. Yeah. So, so in my opinion, and it's strictly my opinion, we could be looking at a gener- hopefully a generational shift here as the younger generation has been more, I would say, diligent on this, this front. And so if that's the case, there are going to be many advisory firms that in the future could be looking for diverse teams, whether it's race, gender, age. So what advice would you give to that firm who's trying to s- recruit somebody like you? Well, well, first of all, I won't give them all my secret sauce because then I've got to compete <laughs> against them. But um, I will say that it's important to focus on the upside more than you do the downside. So a lot of the talk I hear is against the case for DNI, or a lot of the talk that I hear that is against the case, I should say, against DNI, whether it's advisors or clients, it's about the downside. What happens if we do bring in a whole workforce of you know women or Black folks or Latinos or whoever, uh, what will the clients think? And I think the focus is always on the downside, but I think some of the focus should be on the upside, which is if we don't do this, what happens to us? Or put a different way, there, there still isn't a place that I would say as a Black advisor, I've ever heard anybody say that particular firm is the firm of choice, choice excuse me, for Black advisors. And on the flip side, that then means there's still an opportunity because these people don't exist in mass just yet for a firm to become the firm of choice for diverse millionaires. Because as, so I'm 32 myself and I'm starting to see some peers and some folks just slightly ahead of me who are very clearly on their way to being that if they are not already. And so if I am that diverse client who is a millionaire now in my 30s and 40s, who to your point, David, is looking at a different world than the one that my parents and grandparents grew up in, there's no firm yet that speaks to me and says, you diverse millionaire, we are the firm for you because we see it just as important as you do to have representation at all levels of all shapes and sizes and shades and everything else. So I I think, frankly, it's an opportunity for someone to be so bold as to create and message themselves as the go-to firm for higher net worth, you know, diverse clients. I think you have it right. And just, you know, to emphasize the thinking about it positively, one of the questions we asked was about culture for those firms mm-hmm. who had adopted a, a DNI um, strategy, and 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 I think I, I don't have this exactly right, but it was it was upwards towards sixty percent of firms said that their culture had improved, and I think less than two percent said their culture was worse for it. So that gets to things like recruiting and retention, and just you know when people are happy, they treat their clients better. So I, I think that there's a lot of upside. And now we are towards the end of our time oh, together. No. It, it flew by. I could go on <laughs> for another 30 or 90 minutes with you, Malcolm. But 
is there one actionable takeaway? I mean, I, I think you kind of did give us one. I don't know if you're going to be the person that founds that firm, but one actionable takeaway for our listeners today. I don't think there's just one he's given us. I think he's given us <laughs> I, I, I told you at the onset that if there's one thing I love, it's talking shop about this industry because there's just so much that you can do, uh, especially now as an RIA who has a seat at the table at their firm and, and gets to help decide some of the direction that we go in as a firm and you know as partners in the firm. But I think one thing that, that really makes the shift to your point earlier, Laura, where I started off talking about the younger clients who I am able to work with. It's the fact that we as an industry are still treating people as assets under management and are only focused on what can you do for me today, Mr. or Mrs. Client. And that's the way that I look at the AUM-based model. Whereas we're in an environment where you have so many what we call Henry's, your high earners who are not rich yet, especially where I am in the DC area, where you're missing the mark uh, as the larger wirehouse firm who will not allow the advisors to bill on planning. So I'm a certified financial planner. I should be able to do just planning work with the clients if they don't need or want asset management and bill for that service separately and apart from the asset management itself. That to me is another thing that that we could be doing that will kind of level the playing field from a client perspective, right? Because a lot of the clients that we're talking about, traditionally, the white families have generational wealth that transfers to them from mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and whoever before them that other communities of color are just now getting to. So you still have a lot of people who are first-generation college graduates, first-generation homeowners and so on in these communities that they have a high enough income that they would be able to pay for planning services as a separate entity, separate and apart from the assets that they have outside of their workplace 401k in their home. But a lot of firms still aren't set up to accommodate that. And that's where I'm really seeing the growth in that top line revenue number for our firm that a lot of people still aren't really willing and able to accommodate just yet. Wow. Very cool. Well, Malcolm, it is unfortunately that time of day and we have to say goodbye. But first, we'd like to tell you how much we enjoyed the conversation and say thank you for talking shop with us and taking time out of what is obviously a very busy day for you. So thank you very much. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. All right. That was a great conversation, guys. Very good. And thanks so much, Laura, David, and Malcolm. Malcolm Etheridge of CIC Wealth Management. You landed the plane there on time, you know, not too bad. It's it's very easy to subscribe to the Flexible Advisor podcast with Laura Gregg and David Partain of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds. All you have to do is hit the subscribe button right on this page. You can also share this conversation with friends and colleagues by tapping the share button. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to the Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. 
Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.